Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Well, the grace and peace of our Lord be with all of you who have gathered here today, both in our sanctuary and in our family life center. And to all of you who are tuning in online, we're grateful that you would be a part of this day today. Uh, today we have some great news to share. You know, standing with me here, most of you know Rhonda Berg. And so I'm just going to ask Rhonda if you just give us a prayer for us as we enter into a time of, of uh, study. Father God, in the name of Jesus, we come thanking you, Lord God. We come to worship your holy name, Father. We ask that you open our ears, that we can hear clearly your call on us today in your words. Open our hearts that we may receive the words you have for us today. Open our minds that we will understand your call and our assignment through your word. We pray for Pastor Sean. Let the words of his mouth be a meditation of your heart. Let them be acceptable in your sight. God, you're our strength and you're our redeemer. These things we ask and pray in the matchless, holy name of Jesus. Amen. So I want to encourage you to turn in your scriptures to the book of Colossians. Go ahead and find your way to Colossians chapter 1. It'll be between chapter 1, verse 15 and 20. Go ahead and mark your place, chapter 1, verse 15 through 20. We're not going to read the whole text. In fact, we're not going to read any of it yet. But in a little while... We're going to land on a verse that matters today, and it finds itself parked in the middle of that passage. I want you to go ahead and be ready for it when we get there. But first, we begin by me telling you that we are now in the last part of the series that we've been pursuing these last six weeks. Today is the last culminating part of this series called Losing My Religion, and it has begun some conversations, has it not? We've had some serious conversations because every one of us in this room and beyond, we understand, we know people and we love people who we see walking away from religion. And it worries us, it concerns us, it breaks our hearts. And we recognize these last six weeks, we've been looking at some very important data, some research that has come out in recent years to describe why it is that so many are leaving religion in such large numbers these days. And what we've attempted to do is hold up that information right before us and right next to it, hold up sacred scripture, and in a posture of humility, ask the Lord, what must we do? Because we've recognized that over the years, we have been culpable, the church has been culpable in participating in the reasons why some have, have left the faith. We have We've been for some things we should have been against. We've been against some things that we should have been for. We've made no room for ambiguity or mystery or questioning or doubting to reconstruct a faith that has been deconstructed. 
At times we have been so suspicious of everything outside these walls that we've given our young the impression that we need to lock them up until they grow of age and then explore the world somehow unprepared for the complexities that are already there. And with that complexity comes beauty, yet the church along the way has been culpable at ignoring the beauty and being afraid of the complexity. We've been talking about that these past six weeks, and I pray that if you miss any of these installments, I want you to go back and watch them and share them with someone you love who may be on the edge, who may have walked away from faith or from religion or walked away from the church because what we're learning, and it gives me a great sense of hope, is that those who are walking away from religion are not necessarily walking away from faith. There still is a deep hunger and thirst for transcendence and connection and spiritual fulfillment and transformation. Still a hunger for a life that matters and has mission and meaning. And if we can somehow humble ourselves as the church and repent of the ways that we have approached all of these complexities in the past, maybe God might show us a thing or two about how to be a part of the solution so that we can join with God with what God is up to in the world today. But that takes some courage. It, it takes some focus. And today I, I want to focus on a particular uh, call that we all have as the Lord's church these days. I was thinking about this a while back. Almost six years ago, I preached a sermon series here called Semper Reformanda. You may remember it. It was almost six years ago, this thing. I thought it was like last month. It felt like it just blurs one after the next. And, and Simper Reformanda was a, was a sermon series about God's ever-reforming church, that there is always a changing and always a renewing of the Lord's church if we pay close attention to it. And in that series, I, I lifted up an image before us that I got from Phyllis Tickle in her book, The Great Emergence. And she talked about an Anglican priest who compared what we go through in the church to a great rummage sale. I remember when we were in Tennessee years and years ago, our boys were really, really small. And I'm talking, you know, kindergarten, preschool age. And we, we decided to throw a rummage sale and we got everything ready. We had a lot of junk to get rid of and we price tagged everything like you do at a rummage sale and we're ready. It's all organized. The next morning, all we had to do was lift up the garage door and it was on. But that night, after we had finished getting ready, we went inside for the evening and somebody rang the doorbell because they, they read in the newspaper we were having the rummage sale the next day and they're coming to try to pick on the stuff early before the other customers come. So I go to the door, they're like, can we look at this stuff early? I'm like, no, it's not until tomorrow. We'll be open up really early tomorrow. Oh, but can we just take a peek at it? We won't be long. I'm like, no, I mean, we're like, tomorrow is the thing that, you know, we just ate supper. And they're like, we won't be, just, just a minute, just one peek. And I said, listen, Jeopardy's on. <laughs> and if you don't get off my porch, it'll be, um, what put me in the hospital for 500, Alex? Okay. So, so they left. They came back the next morning. And it was an amazing success. I mean, we sold almost everything that we had. People kept coming and buying our junk. It was so successful that I kept going in the house. Yeah. And bringing stuff we never intended to sell. I'm like, you know, getting lamps that are plugged in, you know. Bed linen that's on the bed, you know. And I knew I had gone a little too far when I came out. And, and Laura says, Sean, whoa. Those are your children. 
take the price tag off of their head, you know. I think about that when I think about what Mark Dyer said about the church. He said, every once in a while, about every 500 years, the church decides to get together and throw a rummage sale. About every 500 years, there is a shift in the culture around the church. So cataclysmic is the shift, culturally speaking, that the church has to make some decisions about what has served us well thus far and what no longer is of service to us in the way we do the things we do. And over the years, we jettison the things that no longer work for us, maybe practices or traditions or even beliefs that no longer seem to reconcile with the world in which we now find ourselves existing. And when you think about it, it's actually true. If you go back 500 years from today, that's around the time of the Great Reformation, the Protestant Reformation with Martin Luther. If you go back about 500 years from that, you land at about 1054, the great schism, the great split in the church between the East and the West, and now it's the Greek Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church. If you go back about 500 years from that, you find yourself at the Council of, uh, of Chalcedon, where so many of the doctrines that we hold dear and, and kind of just assume nowadays were established. It's at the height of the Constantinian synthesis where, where empire and church had now been married. And it's around the same time that the fall of Rome occurred and the rise of Gregory the Great, the Pope, who was the great reformer, who brought great spiritual renewal back to the church and changed the church Forever. If you go back about 500 years before that, well, you're at zero. <laughs> you're at reset. The turning of the age, what some have called the great transformation, where there's this convergence of cultures and ethnicities and races and beliefs, Roman philosophies and Greek philosophies all coming together, and that's the time of the birth of Christ. But if you don't stop there, our Jewish friends will say to you, well, it's not just a Christian phenomenon because if you go 500 years before the great uh, transformation, you're at the Babylonian captivity where it's at the end of first temple Judaism and that had collapsed and now they're in exile. But if you don't stop there and go 500 years back, another click, now you're at the, the height of the, the Davidic dynasty where King David comes and unifies this after the period of the judges. The world had changed again, and now they have a unified kingdom, and they build a temple under his son Solomon. Do you see? Every 500 years, and the reason I bring that up to you today is because you and I find ourselves parked right now in the middle of the next rummage sale of the ages. It's landed on our watch. We didn't ask for it. You know, it's not our fault. It's just our turn. And here we are. And while we are on call as the presence of Christ in the world, we have to make some decisions about the ever-changing world in which we find ourselves. What is it that must change within the church? What is it at the great rummage sale today that we've got to let go? And what in the great rummage sale is not for sale? So today, I want to talk to you for just a moment about what do you do when my religion throws a rummage sale? When my religion throws a rummage sale? Because while I could tell you about a thousand things that need to be sold and 10,000 that need to be held, I only want to tell you about three. Three things that need to go at the great rummage sale of today. 
for the church to survive and thrive in the next era. And three things that we cannot put up for sale. First, what must go? The first thing in the great rummage sale, in my opinion, out of the many that must go, the first is this, our fear of losing control. Our fear of losing control. Do you know that that is what we are grieving when we don't know that's what we're grieving? You know, we're upset that we look around the world and it's not as religious as it used to be. It's not as spiritual as it used to feel. But in many ways, at some level, maybe four or five leagues beneath the heart, do you know what I think we're experiencing? We are grieving the loss of control. We currently now live in what is known as a post-Christian era. And all that means is we are no longer the church. We are no longer at the center of all the social and cultural and political decision-making these days. We are not at the hub of the wheel. And if you doubt that, if you doubt that we're living in a post-Christian era where we have control and authority and some kind of influence, I'll quote to you what was quoted to me. I have one word for you. Soccer. Travel ball. Tennis. Whatever. You, you fill in the blank. Because the truth is, that ship has sailed. On Sunday morning, we no longer are under the illusion that we are the dominant presence in society. And we grieve that, but at the same time, do you know our Jewish neighbors, they've been dealing with this for a long time. We have no problem playing soccer on Saturdays, do we? And our Muslim neighbors, we have no problem going out on Friday nights either, do we? But maybe for the first time in a long time, we have to come to grips with our fear of losing control and maybe learn to practice a faith that is not dependent on our control and our dominance in society. When we live at a time when we have religious privilege, where all of the, the systems in place were in service to the Lord's church, you know what that does to us? It gives us an illusion. It makes it convenient. And we, we have a certain confidence and a comfort from that. But you know what happens? There is a directly proportional relationship between how easy your faith is and how weak it is. But there's also an inverse relationship if it is hard and not done for you. And you got to try and you got to want it. Well, then there is a relationship between how difficult it is and how strong it is. See, sometimes control is an illusion. You know, I, I, thought, about, I thought about what this first item ought to be. And the reason I say it is letting go of the fear of control, losing control, because when we become Christians, that is a decision of the heart that is born out of a sense of suffering, born out of a sense of risk. When he says, all who wish to be my followers must take up their cross daily and follow me, there's risk in that. It's not convenient. It's difficult. You got to want it. And the truth is, Christian faith without risk is neither Christian nor faith. Christian faith without risk is neither Christian nor faith. So you know where the greatest moments in history of the church are, in seasons when we have not been in charge, in seasons where we have had to want it. Even today, the places where the church is thriving, growing, it's on fire for Christ, are in places I've told you before, in China and 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 and. Uh, Iraq, North Korea, Afghanistan, places where no one 
at higher levels of systems of government will do a thing to help you with your faith, you got to want it. And one of the things that you and I have to do is learn the truth of what was spoken by Jesus in Matthew's gospel. He said, for those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. One thing that we must come to grips with in this great rummage sale is we got to let go of our fear of not being in charge anymore. Because the truth is, Christianity, following Jesus, the way of Jesus is the way of relinquishment. That means the degree to which we are willing to let go of our fear of losing control is the degree to which we demonstrate our true confidence in Christ to actually rule and reign. Does that make sense? I mean, the degree to which we are willing to let go of controlling the thing is the degree to which we demonstrate our true confidence that Christ can actually handle it on his own. Yeah. So the first thing that's got to go is a fear of losing control. The second thing that's got to go in this great rummage sale is old ways of measuring success. You know how we used to measure success in churches for years and years and years. Nickels and noses. How many people came and how much money did they give? And so if you're building buildings and you're, 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 you're multiplying in baptisms and your, your budget is increasing year to year, those are measurements of success. Those were the only ones for a long time. Now, are those measures of success? Yes, they are. They tell you that things are healthy, that things are moving. In fact, you need to understand that your pastors have some serious goals about growth this year and beyond. And we watch and we count and we pay attention to who's coming and how they're getting engaged. We count people. And you say, why? We count people because people count. <laughs> Every single one, one at a time. And so we do pay attention. And I give thanks to God for the reality that post-COVID, our church is recovering in ways that are beyond the norm for many of the churches where my friends and colleagues are living and loving and leading. And I give thanks to God for that. So we pay attention to nickels and noses. But those are not the only measures, and they're not even the most important measures of success. How can you tell if your church is thriving? Well, see, there's a difference between outputs and outcomes. What's an output? An output is a result of your input. If you put in time and money and energy and promotion and publication, well, then you'll get an output. So your input turns into your output. That seems to make sense. But an outcome is different. An outcome measures transformed hearts. An outcome is over the number of years that you're together as you're turning the soil over and cultivating it and watering the seed and then fertilizing it and nurturing it. Does anything grow in it? The outcome is the fruit that grows in the lives of people because they are a part of something we're doing here. So here's an easy way to ask the question. How do you measure success? What's a better way to measure success in the age that is to come? I say it's this. Are you more loving today than you were February 5th, 2022? Are you more patient? Are you kinder? Have you participated in the reconciliation of relationships? Have you helped to repair something that was broken? Or maybe put another way, are you more merciful, compassionate, are you more awake to the presence of the divine in and around you? Maybe put another way, are you more like Jesus today than you were a year ago? See, now that, that is measuring the outcome 
of transformation. That's why we, every year when our, our pastors get together for our retreat, which happened last week, again, we make a visit to two special people, Joe and Betty Pugh. This is Joe and Betty. Aren't they lovely? I've told you about Joe and Betty before. They are eponymous figures. They are eponyms. They are made-up people who are members of JCBC. They represent you, every one of you. And here's the thing with Joe and Betty. Joe and Betty were born here. Joe and Betty were raised up through the children's ministry and the youth ministry. They went on the retreats. They went on camps. They came through our adult Sunday school. They also went on the mission trips. They came to every sermon series and loved everyone, especially Leviticus. They came and they loved the music. They participated in the music program. And now they're 100 years old and we're at their funeral because they died peacefully in their sleep together last night. And what we do every year is we say, okay, if we're at their funeral and we are holding as their ministers these two lives back up to God who entrusted them with to us in the first place, our question is to the Lord, how'd we do? How did we do? And then seeing that end point as our vision, our mission, our aim, we work backward and everything that we plan is in service to making sure that Joe and Betty, when they are returned to the Lord and see him face to face, it is as if Jesus is looking in a mirror because their character has been shaped here, their identity has been shaped here, and they became more and more like Christ every day of their lives, every year of their lives. That is how we measure success in the Lord's church. So yeah, we're going to keep counting. We'll use both hands if we need to, but we're going to continue to look at how our hearts being transformed while we are here together. So the first thing that's got to go with the great rummage sale is our fear of losing control. We must be fearless and unflappable in what is ahead. But the second thing that must go is old measurements of success that are limited and not enough. And the third thing that must go in the great rummage sale may be the most important right now. What must go is our adulterous affair with partisan politics. For so long, the church has had such an adulterous affair with politics that at times it has forgotten who her first love was. Mm -hmm. Now, what's wrong with politics, Sean? Nothing inherently wrong with politics. You know why? Because sometimes in order to institute actions of justice in the world and mercy in the world and equity in the world, it requires legislation. It re requires policy. There's nothing inherently wrong with politics. But way too often, more often than not, we have been bad stewards of our relationship with politics. And it has created some interesting love childs. You know, almost 10 years ago, B.J. Benton asked me a question in an open forum. We had a kind of a talk back to the pastor. Let's, let's have a dialogue kind of thing. And B.J. said to me, Sean, what do you think is the greatest challenge to the church today? And at the time, without even thinking twice, I said, well, college football is a challenge. <laughs> you know, but then I was halfway kidding. My true answer to him at the time, I meant with all my heart, I, I said, consumerism. The consumer mind has ruined so many 
of the opportunities for the church because in a consumer age where we are consumer-minded in every realm of our existence, we can't shut that off in the parking lot. So we show up at church and we come to church with a kind of customer satisfaction radar going off. And if we're not happy, well, we'll shop for churches like we shop at Costco. And that has created a problem for many, many years. And I was right about that. Still am a little bit. But today, if he were to ask me that question today, I say, if BJ were to ask me that question today, yeah. Oh, that's a great question, BJ. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad you're back there, by the way. I can't see you. I'm glad glad you're back there. Today, my answer would be different. My answer is clear. Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism, which is the toxic, and I would say even unchristian, unexamined merger of one's national identity and one's Christian faith. And it happens and can happen in any country where you blur your identity between what's it mean to be a good citizen and what's it mean to be a good follower of Christ. And at times when those identities blur, they are in conflict with one another and you can't tell where one begins and one ends. And an assumption with Christian nationalism, the problem with it, is that it diffuses the integrity of both. I know people of all political parties who when they see Christian nationalism on display, they cringe. People of all parties because they say, well, that's neither my version of being a citizen nor my version of following Jesus. And that's kind of icky. That's not me. And yet it passes. Do you remember when I said a few weeks ago about when Caesar made Christianity the, the, the empire church? I said, it's possible to merge it in such a way that it doesn't feel so icky at first. It's like baking a cake. Remember, I said, you can make a cake with the ingredients of empire, power, authority, uh, dominion, control, protection, defense. You can make the cake of the ingredients of empire and then decorate it with the frosting of Jesus and assume that the whole cake is Jesus. It may taste a little like Jesus at first, but it's not Jesus. And what happens with Christian nationalism is we, without an examined approach to what is actually being, being displayed in front of us, we both diminish what it means to be a citizen and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. See, I almost thought of even saying in the great rummage sale, we ought to make Christian nationalism on sale. Get it off. Get it out of our way because it diminishes the integrity of the message of Jesus. Because we are a part, when you follow Jesus, of a multinational, multi-ethnic, multi-racial movement of those who have given their life to Jesus. And you say, well, hang on, but we're, this is a Christian nation. This is a Christian nation. Well, hang on just a minute. And you can talk to me about founding fathers and your philosophy about who they were and what they believed. And we can talk all day long about the myriad of beliefs that made up their theology But really, we don't even have to have that conversation because it's way easier than that. Christian nation is an oxymoron in terms. You can't have a nation that to be a Christian means I have come as an individual to a place of personal repentance of my sin. And in repentance of my sin, I have come to the place where my individual soul has chosen to follow him as the Lord and Savior of my life. You can no more have a nation that decides to do that together than you can have a garage door decide to do that. 
There's no such thing. It is an oxymoron in terms. It diminishes both citizenship and, you know, I told you before, it's like mixing ice cream and manure. It doesn't change the manure, but the ice cream just doesn't taste as good. Right? So I almost thought about making Christian nationalism a part of this rummage sale. But you know what the thing is? It's not Christian nationalism that's the problem. Christian nationalism is the love child of the adulterous affair between the church and politics. And we've been guilty of that for ages. Do you know that half the prophets in the Old Testament, when they talk about what went wrong with Israel, they speak of it not as being in violation of some holy code. They speak of it as being in violation of a marriage covenant where Israel has forgotten who her true love is. So we hear strong words from people like Hosea, who says, she has played the whore. This religion, these religious people, they forgot, they played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water and my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. The accusation there is because Israel went after some source of security and confidence that was outside of God, I'll seek my wool and my flax and my oil and my drink. I will shore up the confidence of my life based on the national promises of Israel's neighbors. He says, you're playing the prostitute. You have cheated on me. It's an adulterous affair when we forget who our first love is. Jeremiah says it the same way. Jeremiah says, on every high hill and under every green tree, you sprawled and played the whore. This is why when Augustine talked about the church, my word, do you know that when the church became powerful and, and, and Constantine made the church the national religion, do you know, there were some groups of men and women who would move out to the desert. They called, we call them the desert mothers and fathers because they were seeing what was happening. They were seeing that they were being compromised. The more power we have, the more compromised our devotion to Christ is. That's why Augustine said that it's possible for the church. The church at times can play the prostitute. Because we forget what the psalmist said. In Psalm 134, the psalmist says, Put not your trust in princes, in mortals, in whom there is no help. When their breath departs, they return to the earth. On that very day, their plans perish. Beloved, one thing that we have got to get rid of in the great rummage cell is our adulterous affair with partisan politics. You say, well, then if we're getting rid of these, what remains? Well, there are three things that remains that remain. We have to get rid of our fear of losing control. We have to get rid of our old measures of success that don't measure the right thing. And we have to get rid of our adulterous affair with partisan politics. But there are three things, at least, that we need to keep. Three that are not for sale. Three that have no stickers, no price on them because we won't get them up, give them up. The very first is the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The Lordship of Jesus Christ. If Christ is not Lord of all, then he is not Lord at all. And in the moment the church begins to organize or strategize or plan our way forward without remembering that it is he 
who is the foundation and he who is the head, then we are doomed for destruction. So our first confession of faith in the first century were these simple words, Jesus is Lord. For Jesus to be Lord, we we have our baptismal candidates. Every time we baptize, say it out loud so the universe hears, Jesus is the Lord of my life. For Jesus to be Lord means that you've come to a place where you recognize you want to live perpetually in, in yieldedness to the authority of Jesus in your life. That means every day is punctuated by moments of awareness that it is he who is guiding, it is he who is leading. It's what Paul said, really, in Philippians. For to me, to live is Christ. He's everything. Or, or maybe it's the way it's read in Galatians. I am crucified with Christ. Therefore, it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. Therefore, the life that I now live in the flesh, I live according to faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me, Christ the Lord. And we just sang just a moment ago, we heard the choir sing in this room, one of the greatest hymns of faith. The church is one foundation. The church is one foundation. Is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride and his, with his own blood he bought her and for her life. He died. Beloved, in the moment that we forget that Jesus is the foundation and Jesus is the Lord, we have to remember that not only as individuals but as the church. Because as the head of the church, this is where the Colossians passage passage comes that I asked you to turn to a moment ago. He is the head of the body, the church. The beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he might have come to have first place in everything. And it, it, uh, the reason I say what seems to be very obvious, that the lordship of Jesus Christ is not for sale, is because if we panic, if we get nervous about the trajectory of church, if we move into uncharted territory, we will reach for every trick in our bag of tricks. We'll try to be more clever. We'll try to be more trendy. We'll try to do whatever is going to appeal to the consumer mind and heart. But if we forget that it is Jesus who is the Lord of this church and the head of this church, then we have lost our way. The Lordship of Jesus Christ is not for sale in the rummage sale. You know what else is not for sale? Something else that we have to hold on to that cannot be let go of during the rummage sale is the way of Jesus as our way of life. The way of Jesus as our way of life. We are part of this, not because we simply assent to a variety of doctrinal statements. We are part of this because every aspect of him is meant to permeate every aspect of our lives. That means that we immerse ourselves in the radical teachings of Jesus so that when we move and live and breathe and have our existence, it's as if the living resurrected body of Christ is living through us. And that takes shape in a variety of ways. When his way is our way of life, we remember things that he taught us. Teachings like the kingdom of God, the mysterious realm beyond is breaking in here. 
And if you have the eyes to see it and the ears to hear it, you can see that the the realm of God's beauty and love and grace and reign is breaking in all around you. And here's the good news. You can grow those eyes and you can grow those ears. And if you do, you begin to see in your neighbors a different way to see your neighbors. They're no longer strangers. They're no longer enemies, but they are every last one of them. Images of God born beautifully in his own likeness. And if you begin to see your neighbors that way, even your enemies, even the neighbor who doesn't take his trash can up on trash day and leaves it out for like two days, if you begin to see them differently, it begins to shape what you do around them. Your way of life is transformed. And suddenly you you become a conduit of God's love and mercy and welcome and grace and embrace to the point where without even trying anymore, the fruit that's growing out of you is the kind of fruit that we saw in the life of Jesus. That means that you, you go where Jesus would go. You do what Jesus would do. You say the things he would say. You think the things he would think. You feel what he feels. You embrace who he embraces. And in the end, your way of life has demonstrated the way for others. You know, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But so often we use that verse as a kind of weapon to brandish against people of other religions as if he's talking about who's the best religion here. Jesus wasn't talking about religion at all. Jesus was asked by Thomas when Jesus said, I'm going away and where I'm going, you can't go right now. But how do we know the way? He says, and Jesus said, Thomas, are you out of your mind? You know, I am the, you've been with me for three years at least. Do you see the way I love people? You see the way I take care, see the way I humble myself? Do you see the way that I yield myself to the needs of the other? Do you see the way that I sacrifice what is in me for the sake of the other? Do you see how I pay attention to the people who are pushed to the margins of everybody else's consciousness? Do you see what I'm doing? I am the way. And I am the truth and I am the life. What I like to say about that verse is the Jesus way is the truth about life. And if you and I were able to somehow <clears throat> somehow embody the way of Jesus as our way of life, can you imagine how irresistible the message of the church would be? If that were our only objective is to live in the way Jesus lived, and let the rest be left up to God. Beloved, this would be an irresistible place to be. So one thing that cannot go is our ordering our lives so that the way of Jesus is our way of life. And finally, there's one more thing that we simply can't let go. The last thing that we cannot let go is a renewed passion for making more and deeper disciples of Jesus. Now we know there's a phrase, we call it the Great Commission. It comes to us in Matthew and it reads this way. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Beloved, the one thing that we cannot let go in this great rummage sale is a renewed passion, a zeal, for making disciples of all nations, of all kinds of peoples. And the truth is we've used that verse before to kind of also brandish as a weapon. We go and we make converts 
But there's a difference between making a convert and growing a disciple. To grow a disciple means we begin with a relationship. Do you know that the people in your neighborhood are known by God, loved by God? Alan Roxburgh in his book, Missional, Moving Into the Neighborhood, said, we have to check our assumptions here because do you or do you not believe that God is at work in the lives of people in the world? And if you do believe that God is at work in the lives of people in the world, then God has moved into the neighborhood of our existence and the call is for you and me to move into the neighborhood with God and join God with what God is up to in the lives of people. But what that means is we have to become vulnerable. It means that we have to make ourselves available for relationship so that even those who are unbelieving and maybe those who are ex-believers those who have walked away from religion for, forever, so they think, will see in us a renewed, refreshed version of what it could look like to know God. Now, that is a lifetime of work, and it is worth the effort. And I'm telling you, beloved, these are just three of the things we can't let go of, a zeal for making disciples so that Joe and Betty Pugh who right now are in the nursery downstairs being rocked and fed and changed, will one day at their 100th birthday, when they gently and pleasantly die together in their sleep, will be handed back to God as transformed people. Now, that's where this whole series has led to a renewed call for us to let go of some things that have been getting in the way and hang on with both hands to that which cannot be sold, the lordship of Jesus Christ, the way of Jesus as our way of life, and a renewed passion for making more and deeper disciples of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. Now, it may be that you're here today and you're hearing these words and Part of what I'm saying is resonating with you because maybe something is going on in your heart and God has been working on that part of you for a long time. But today, maybe something has aligned. You know, maybe something has converged and today is a day of decision for you. It may be that though you don't know what the next several steps of your future may hold, you do know that you could use some company and you could use some people like Johns Creek Baptist around you who recognize in humility that none of us have this all figured out, but we follow the one who does know where this all, this all goes in the end. So today, maybe you, you need to pray for the very first time to receive Christ as the Lord of your life. And maybe if you don't know how to pray that way, you, you use my words, just borrow mine right here where you are in your heart. Pray these words. I am not enough on my own. I can't rescue myself. I can't cleanse myself of my own unrighteousness. I've attempted again and again to course correct my life and maybe a, a trajectory that leads me to a path that's everlasting. But I confess to you, Christ, I am not qualified for that job. But you are. And in humility, I yield myself to you and ask for your grace to wash over me, for your forgiveness to purify, to cleanse, to restore me from within. And I will follow you for the rest of my life.